Hey everybody, welcome back. We are continuing in our two-part series, The 12 Don'ts of Tough Conversations. And I told you last week that this was going to be a doozy. And I also told you that I would recap the first six just in case you didn't see it yourself. I'm going to give you the first six, but just remember, we are excited about what we're doing here at Take Action and we're making a difference around the world. They're getting ready to put up a link on how you can contribute to our work across the world. We're taking the gospel all the way to Africa, to London, uh, to, to Italy. We're, we're even in some of the Middle Eastern states uh, where we never thought when we started ministry that God would have us to have impact and effect. But nonetheless, we're there. And when you give, you help us to do great things for the kingdom of God. And we appreciate you. So they're putting uh, all of the information on the screen right now. And we'll do so periodically so that when you feel led to partner with us uh, to make a difference, you can also do so. But let me give you those first six for those of you all who may not have been here with us. We said that the first thing that you don't want to do on your way to success was to shoot yourself in the foot. After that, we talked about the first six steps. The first, I mean, these were like, in my opinion, like were like blockbusters, the don'ts of tough conversations. Number one, we said, don't use we when you mean you. That was a good one. I mean, in my notes, I highlighted that one in red. Number two, we talked about, you know, not being fooled by the fuzzy feeling and, and, and using candor and precision in your expression, right? Number three, we said that we don't press through when our emotions are high. <clears throat> I know we've been taught to do that, but sometimes you gotta just chill and you gotta take a step back and relax. And we talked about how emotional stress limits the creative solution finding mechanisms in our mind. And then when self-justification enters into the equation, calamity is almost inevitable. Number four, we said, don't drag things out like you got to you got to take a break. And we went back to number three and talked about not pressing through with tough emotions. And we talked about not dragging things out for a month or two or three or a year or two or four. And we used two portions of scripture to justify our argument. We talked about Matthew 27 verses one through 10, which is the story of Jesus and Judas. And we also talked about first Kings chapter 18 verses 16 through 40, which is the story really in the beginning about Ahab, <coughs> excuse me, about Ahab and Elijah. So we talked about emotional stress uh, and, and how we can drag things on too long. Number five, we said never have the same conversation three times. We talked about it. it's unacceptable for you to still be having the conversation three times when you can impose a higher level of control and accountability in your ecosystem if the problem continues to exist. And you can use this in your business. You can use this in your family. You can use this in your marriage. You can use this in your ministry. And then we ended off with number six where we said, forget about offering options when you are not willing to either abide or discuss them. If you're going to give directions, just go ahead and do what you want to do. Those were the first six don'ts of a tough conversation. We're still using Matthew chapter 27 as our basis, verse 1 through 10. And I'm going to let you read that on your own to contribute to the brevity of time with our conversation. And then I also want you to look at 
First Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through 40. And how Ahab and Elijah kept blaming each other and how Judas in Matthew chapter 27 hung himself, not realizing that if he would have just had the guts to have a tough conversation with Jesus, Jesus already had grace for his issue. And Judas could have been one of the greatest men in the history of the church, but he ended his life and became a martyr thereafter. And so I want to start with um, the seventh step, the seventh step and don'ts of having a tough conversation. I want you to know, and, and women are really going to agree with me on this one. Brothers, we got this bad. You're going to have to pay attention to your posture. I'm not saying women don't do it, too, because some of y'all sisters, you know, y'all buck. <clears throat> but we all, when we're having a tough conversation, man, when you have an adversarial posture, people are thinking defense, not listen. Like you can't be standing over somebody and pointing and directing and doing all of this, you know. You ever had you ever talked to somebody? It, it looks like they're doing martial arts when they're talking. You see, that's that puts the person on the defensive. And adversarial postures keep you from being an effective communicator. Your job, this is going to listen, you got to be mature to do this. I'm about to give you something. Your job is to help the person you're arguing with are having a tough conversation with, your job is to find a way to give them what they want. You will lose every time you try to win a tough conversation. Woo! You will not, listen, the operative word is win. You will lose Whenever you try to win a tough conversation and listen, you don't lose it all up front. You may lose it in the future. You may lose it in trust. You may lose it in love. But you will lose every time you try to win a tough conversation. You have to be mature enough in a difficult moment to try to figure out a way to help the person who you're in the tough spot with get what they want. Man, I just need to just pause for a minute. Because how many of you know that's true? Raise your virtual hand. How many of you know that's true that you've lost every tough conversation you've tried to win? How many of you know that it doesn't even make sense to you to try to help somebody get what they want when you disagree with them. How many of you know that you have an adversarial posture when you're having a conversation? Look at how Jesus handled this. Crucify him. Nail him to the cross. He ain't who he said he is. He ain't the son of God. What does the Bible say? He never says a word. There was nothing adversarial about the posture of Jesus on the way to the cross. In fact, in fact, he even told him, if I call my daddy and tell him what y'all doing to me, 
he going to send legions of angels, 12 legions to be exact, to come and see about me. But I ain't going to do it. I'm not going to display my power. You better hear me. You are always powerless when you allow somebody to provoke you to use your power. Power should never be exercised when you're provoked. Not at that moment. You may use the power down the line, but always maintain your power for strategic use. Because power that is used when afflicted is typically abuse. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. I'm showing you how to become the person. We're at take action. We're at take action. We're, we're, we're not just going to say verse one said, verse two said. No, we're going to tackle life. We're going to tackle life. Try not to adopt an adversarial position and posture. In a tough conversation, it is your job to help a person get what they want. And you lose when you try to win a tough conversation. Number eight. <clears throat> Never make it your responsibility to try to fix somebody. Nobody enjoys being fixed. People grow. They don't need to be fixed. And when you are facilitating somebody's growth, they will appreciate you. When you adopt yourself as somebody's mechanic, they resent you. How many of y'all will just type, don't fix me? Don't fix me. Fix your mama. Fix yourself. But don't fix me. Fix your child. Fix a plate. But don't fix me. How many of y'all can you feel me? You can help facilitate my growth. But when you try to fix me, I resent you. And that is why most of us have difficulty in our relationships is because we have not attributed our assets and our strengths to somebody's growth. We want to fix them. Why? Because growth takes time. But I need you better today. So I'm going to fix you while I stay broken. How can my car be broke down and you hire me to be your mechanic? That's the same thing that happens in relationships and in business and in ministry. You have people with broken attitudes trying to fix people. Charity begins at home. You got to start with you. Facilitate a person's growth. That is the best way. You can bring about the child that's inside of the child you're raising if you facilitate their growth and stop trying to fix them. They will appreciate the journey instead of resenting you as a tour guide. Are you are you really hearing me? Don't take responsibility to fix people. So when you're having a tough conversation, your, your comments can't be like. Oh, God sent me here to fix you. Oh, well, then I want a refund. I want a refund. I don't want anybody who thinks their job is to fix me. I want people in my life who want to help facilitate my growth. And let me tell you, when you help a person facilitate their growth, they will fix themselves. 
when a person sees what's wrong with them, it is better than you trying to show them what's wrong with them. How many people watching me will say, man, I wish you would have told me this six months ago. I wish you would have told me this six years ago because I've ruined some things trying to fix people. Number nine. Never expect a person to excel where they lack aspiration. If a person doesn't have the strength to want to change, you are wasting your precious time. So if a person loves to be argumentative, if they love conflict, if it's dragging out for months and they refuse to accept responsibility, can I give you a word? Either reassign them or kick them out. I'm talking to a manager right now. You own the company, but you can't seem to get the team member on board. You're either, either going to have to reassign them you're going to have to repurpose them. You're going to have to let somebody else utilize that gift and talent. Because how many of you will admit that sometimes you've held up the whole team trying to save one person? No one person is worth the progress of your entire organization. Nobody is that good for you to put the entire culture of the organization at risk. Because you refuse to have a tough conversation with one person. Okay, and what we do, I know they're going to blow up. Let them blow up. Well, I don't want to hear their mouth. Hear their mouth. Because I'm telling you, my brother and my sister, that if this persists, it's going to cost you more than you're willing to pay. And you're going to stay longer than you packed for. When a person doesn't have an aspiration in an area you cannot expect growth in that area and so if it drags on at the company in the office in the business if it drags on you may either have to reassign them you may have to reassign them or you may have to manage them out and that means you may have to go straight to it and say hey like like listen this isn't working i'm trying to teach you how to have tough conversations without appearing tough so that you can get to the next level. Number 10. Listen to this. Never offer your suggestion until you already know what their design is. This is money. Which means before you start offering suggestions in a tough conversation, you should probably start off asking questions. How many of you have ever been in a conversation with somebody, they, they started off with solutions before you even expressed what the problem was? I gotta go back to this. Do not solve problems for people. They don't want it. It took me 41 years of living. It took me 20 years of pastoring and 27 years of ministry and a certain level of arrogance that I didn't even know that I had that I thought I could fix anybody because I was anointed. Some people don't want to be fixed. 
And I don't care how much you can pray and speak in tongue and bring down fire from heaven. If they have decided they are comfortable where they are. Your anointing is not going to make them come out of the wilderness. Don't solve problems for people. Here's a question that I often ask to people in a tough conversation. It's about seven to eight words. What would you like to do about this? <laughs> As I am telling you that when you pose the question, then you put the person who's defensive in a position to have to give an answer. If you can't, here's another question. You could tell them, you know what? Okay, I, I see where we are. How about you develop three or four possible solutions and we'll choose one together? How many, how many people wish I would have said that that's married right now? Wish I would have told you that in premarital counseling. I literally know this stuff works. I literally have practiced these steps intentionally and have seen the results just pop, come out of, 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 of people, places, and situations that I never thought would alter the way they dealt with people in the real world and in life. Which brings me to the 11th point, which con connects to the 10th. Most of us struggle because we cannot operate unless we're in control. Where are all the control freaks online? Raise your hand. I want to see them. Like if you can't control it, you can't deal. As you deal with people, Miss CEO, Mr. Boss, give people more freedom as you see progress. More freedom as you see progress. The rule of thumb is controls go up as problems persist and go down as progress is achieved. I'm going to give you that, role of, that rule of thumb again. The rule of thumb is controls go up as problems persist and go down as progress is achieved. When there is progress, you have to learn a way to give affirmation. How many of you either know people or are guilty yourself at always pointing out what's wrong, but you don't have any speech when somebody achieves the goal? They wrong you, you got a lot to say. They get it right, you say stuff like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. You have to have the right language behind the successes that you achieve so that the people in your life will know that that hits your happy button and they will repeat it because you've affirmed the process and the progress and not just fussed about the lack of progress or the problem that persists. So don't keep control. Learn to give it away. 
Like I walk into our organization, we've got about 70 plus staff members here at our church. And there are days that I walk in and don't know what the heck is going on. I'll walk in and I'll see that something has been painted or something has been built or some decision has been made because an organization is always subject, a family is always subject, a church is always subject, a relationship is always subject to what John Maxwell calls the law of the lid. So one of the ways you raise the lid of the organization, the family, the business, the church, is to put it in the hands of more people who can lift it higher. Because sometimes it's not that your arms are not long enough, it's sometimes that the lid is too heavy for you to stretch. You need help, lose control. Not of everything. There's some things you've got to control. You don't have to control everything. I have no idea what time this building opened today. I have no idea what time it will lock tonight. I have no idea about what the maintenance man is doing while I'm talking to you right now. Only thing I know as I work with the people who do. And you have to lose control so that you can gain success. Last point. I want you to work on understanding what a real leader is. This is going to be kind of crazy to say but all of my real leaders are going to understand this and you're going to go to the next level just by this one sentence. My definition of leadership is understanding that it is your job to make the decisions no one else will make and endure the criticism of the people who didn't have the courage to take your steps. I look at people online all day long criticizing people for what they do but they do nothing don't be discouraged by the opinions of people who don't have the same courage as you I have never seen an eagle feel insecure because of a chicken they're not on the same level. Hawks don't consult ducks about altitude. I hope you're hearing me. I hope you understand me. You have to snatch your emotions from the responses of people. 
I'm going to ask you once again to raise your virtual hand if somebody's opinion of you can ruin your entire day. That you gave something your all and because you didn't get the applause or the accolades you thought you deserved, you became a totally diff different person, disassociated from the project and the process. You're a leader. You're the one God called. It's your business to start. Otherwise, it'd already be in operation. The position is yours. Otherwise, somebody would already be doing it. And if they already live in Canaan and they are a Canaanite, it doesn't mean it's their promised land. It just means that God has them there until you get the language to show up. Until you get the faith to possess the land. Until you get the wilderness mentality out of you, Israel, or till you get the desire to hang yourself, Judas. Until you get the argumentative spirit out of you, Ahab, and become all God has created you to be. Those, my friends, are the 12 steps of a tough conversation. Do not shoot yourself in the foot because you cannot control what comes out of your mouth. And when you do that, I told you in part one that I had a caveat for you. I want you to, in your spare time, I want you to read the book of Genesis. I want you to start at chapter 37 and I want you to read all the way to chapter 50. And I'm going to introduce you to a man named Joseph, whose brothers threw him inside of a pit, tore his coat up, put blood on it, took it back to their dad and told him that he had been eaten up by an animal. The Midianites came and pulled him out of that pit, sold him into slavery. Potiphar bought him out of slavery and made him a slave of his house. Potiphar's wife accused him of rape. He was put out of Potiphar's house and thrown into prison. When he got into prison, he was so influential that he became a commander in the prison. And from there, he became second in command to Pharaoh. Now he is looking like an Egyptian. He has shaved his beard off. And the same brothers that threw him in the pit in chapter 37, they have to meet him again in chapter 50. And because Joseph knew how to have a tough conversation, it shows us why no matter what level he was put in, he always excelled. Even when put in the pit, he was pulled out. Even when he was put in a rich man's house, he was put in jail, looked like his life was about to go down, and then he was pulled up again. And from there, he was pulled up again to becoming the second in command in the house that he wasn't born in. How? Because he knew how to have tough conversations. I'm going to prove it. He sees his brothers face to face. Remember the men who threw him in the pit? Now they are starving because there's a famine in the land. And let me tell you, anybody who throws you in the pit 
will always have a need that only you can solve. Now Joseph is second in command. And Joseph is over the food. He's, he's kind of over the, the food pantry. He's, he's over the food bank. His brothers are starving. They see him. They don't recognize him because his beard is cut off. Somehow through a conversation, they recognize, oh my God. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Benjamin, that's Joseph. Threw him in the pit. Now his brothers, and I want to show you something. I want to pull my scripture up just for help's sake. I want you to look at this. I think it's in Genesis 37 where his brothers sell him into slavery. And when his brothers sell him into slavery, they get to the place, here it is, where the Bible says in verse 16 of chapter 37, they say, uh, I'm looking for my brothers. This is him talking. Please tell me where their flocks are. So he's looking up to them and he's going back to them and he's looking up to them and he's going back to them. And as he's looking for them, they see him coming from a distance and they're jealous. They're jealous of him. And Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Nephtali and Gad and Asher and whoever was there. They had to see him again. And when they see him again. They are apologetic. But Joseph knows how to have a tough conversation. He says. I want to sit up and look you in your face. What you meant for evil. God meant for my good. That's the art of a tough conversation. He could have said, I don't want to talk to y'all. Y'all threw me away. You did this. You did that. No. Tough conversation. Had the right posture. Didn't try to take control of the situation. Didn't remind them of everything they did. He just simply said, what you meant for evil. God meant for my good. Learning how to have tough conversations with people who hurt you could be the difference between your pit and your palace. You're already a king. You're already a queen. Now we're just waiting on you to adopt the language of your level. I pray that God would would grab a hold of your sensibilities right now and keep you so focused on this word that you don't miss the potency and the power of the phrases that I've just literally planted into your spirit. Use these 12 steps to change the next 12 years, 24 years, 36 years of your life. Your children will rise up and call you blessed if you could teach them this lesson. I want to thank you so much.
for being patient with me on this watch. I know the last two lessons were probably pulling at your soul and your spirit, but it's only to push you into your destiny. Thank you so much for being here again with us at Take Action. They're putting information up on the screen and I want you to connect to the giving that we initiated last week. We said that we're gonna give $12 towards every stone that has been thrown at us, every wall that we want to tear down. So some of y'all have a financial miracle you're looking for. You have a miracle you're looking for in the area of your relationship. And perhaps you're looking for a miracle in the area of your children. That's 36 because 12 times three is 36. I want you to attach a $12 seed to every wall that you want God to break down so that you can become the man and woman of God he's called you to be. This is Take Action. I'll see you next week. Remember, as always, I love you and ain't nothing you can do about it.